Last night, Joseph mentioned at some point in his talk that all of the different teachings of the Buddha uh, deal with transformation of the mind. And so what I want to talk about tonight is really, not all the teachings, but that all the teachings do. Here, of course, we're on an intensive meditation retreat, and most of what we talk about and look at is the the aspect of the teaching of mindfulness meditation, of concentration, and really the, the cultivation of mind in that way, which is, of course, you call it the apex or the, the highest fruit of the practice. But we also can get a little, um, at times, myopic, like we're looking so close, the times when your meditation practice isn't working, you know, and then it feels hopeless because there's no concentration or mindfulness and you're just spinning in negativity or self-doubt, if any of you have any sense of what I'm talking about. And, you know, we say be mindful of it, that thanks a lot. You know, that really doesn't do much. To remember that meditation is not the only form of teaching the Buddha gave and that all his teachings are in support of liberation of heart and mind. And so tonight, the particular teaching I want to talk about is uh, generosity. The words dana in Pali, because I feel like I've learned a lot about the joy, the reciprocity, the, the purifying quality of generosity, receiving and giving in heart and mind in the last few years. I've learned a lot more about it um, experientially, a lot from traveling in Burma, but not just that. And I, I feel like uh, maybe we don't talk about it enough as an active path for brightening the heart and mind, for actually um, cutting through clinging and ill will and also cutting through that, that locked-in sense of me, you know, separate from the world that I need to protect and fear. <clears throat> an act of giving of time, of energy, of caring, of physical things, it doesn't matter what, counteracts all of the kalesa in that way. It's a powerful practice. So I just want to talk a bit about it. As probably most of you know, it was generosity was usually the first thing that the Buddha would talk about when he would meet somebody new would come to him and particularly with lay people, but also with monks and nuns, but particularly with lay people, generosity was one of the first things he talked about, always. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who says, um, Generosity serves as a basis and preparation which underlies and quietly supports the entire path of freeing the mind from the defilements. And the Buddha really taught it that way, as a practice of freeing our heart and minds from defilements, but it also has the power of supporting, underlying, the whole path of awakening. He set up his, you know, he, he chose to, the Buddha chose to live as a monastic, you know, as a renunciate. <clears throat> and so he had a, an order of monks and later an order of nuns. But the way he set up he, he was making it up, right? He was making up the order. He was making up the rules. He could do whatever he wanted. He could teach in whatever way he wanted. And the way he chose to set up the order of monks and nuns was in a way that it was completely through 
generosity and reciprocity, what he called mutuality, that was completely intertwined, the, well, not completely, but daily intertwined. The life of the nuns and the monks was daily intertwined with the life of the lay men and women. He set it up in such a way that monks and nuns couldn't uh, have food or money, that they're completely dependent on lay people. Well, here, here's how he... This is the Buddha talking. Monks, nuns, Brahmins and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicines in times of sickness. And you, monks, are very helpful to Brahmins and householders, for you teach them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Thus, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support between ordained and lay people for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. So basically, he set up the way the Sangha, monks and nuns, work, that they are completely dependent every day on the generosity of lay people. They even now, in Theravada Buddhist countries, every morning the monks and in some places the nuns line up early in the dawn time and go out every day for alms, alms round. You know, they have a big bowl and lay people come and put in food, whoever wants to. You know, they, and that's the only, they can't keep food overnight. So that's the food they have for the day. And this is like a huge living um, activity. In well, the countries I've been in, mostly Burma and Thailand. But it's a way that there's always contact. The monks and nuns couldn't completely withdraw from connection with lay people and feel themselves superior or better. They're completely intertwined by generosity. And then the lay people, even now, they come to the monasteries, to the nunneries for teachings, for festivals, once a week, to practice, to take the precepts, to hear Dhamma talks for their inspiration. You know, like we try to do with a sitting group or a retreat or something. But this is a monastery or a wat in Thailand, sort of like a church that there's one in every village and it's kind of the center of the spiritual life of the village. So in, in Burma, during the cyclone last year, it was in many places, the monasteries, where the monks would really be the ones who could safely go out and try and, you know, clean up and bring, clean up the damage and have food and the villagers would come to the monasteries because they felt safer there. So that's a real living reciprocity, set up on generosity, set up on mutuality. It cuts through the sense of separation. So I always knew that. You know, I always knew that it was set up that way, and it seems nice. And, of course, the idea that to be generous is a good thing isn't really, you know, a far, a far idea. Pretty much all spiritual paths have that. But what was kind of, for me, experientially, was as if it were a secret teaching, because I never really experienced it so experientially until I started, oh, the year I was in Thailand, quite a while ago. And then the last eight years, I've been at least a month or so every year in Burma, where the spirit of generosity and friendliness, metta and dana, just permeates the culture. Not only the monks and nuns, but the regular people. And I'll give examples. It permeates the culture, so you pick it up. 
And what the secret, kind of secret that I didn't realize was how incredibly joyful it makes one. How much lightness and spaciousness and brightness and joy this sense of generosity, whether you're receiving or giving, it's like it's the circle, the mutuality, it goes both ways. That how much joy it brings to the heart and it really energizes one, it uplifts one. And uh, then at first, like kind of my Western way, if someone would be generous to me, I think, well, then, you know, one should give something back, kind of like quid pro quo, that's the way we do it. And it's still generous. But the generosity in terms of the Buddha's teaching, of course, as with everything, isn't about outward appearance or the object given or how much or anything. It's all about the quality of heart and mind. And so the conscious practice of generosity, giving, receiving, being really present with the receiving as well as the giving, has a quality of transforming the habits of our heart and mind. It has a power, sure, nothing's permanent, but really a power to, um, when we're in a generous moment, we're not experiencing ill will or greed. We're much less feeling a sense of me, self, others, because there's that connectedness that's really quite palpable. And so this was kind of, I could say it was the, the secret that I've been it kind of seeps in and all of a sudden you realize, wow, generosity is such a happy aspect of life and one that um, maybe looking from the internal way, we can really consciously cultivate, call on, and recollect in our life, in our practice. You know, not just kind of like work, 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 mindful, 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 do generous acts and then think, well, if I think about it, that's just being egotistical, you know, play it down. It's very different there. So let me just give you some examples, partly to give you a sense, but also for me, just when I just think about some of the little acts of generosity or qualities that I've met in people, I get really happy. And it's interesting to see some people have been talking about how to uh, in some of the interviews, how to change the channel in the mind when we feel that we're drowning in negativity or on some particular personal or life issue. And not that you can just say, oh, boom, it's gone. But we can actively sometimes change the channel. Metta is that. Sometimes it doesn't work. Actively, actively speaking or sharing in some way your time, your energy with someone else in a very conscious way of being generous can also do that. Even just reflecting, recollecting your own generosity or the generosity of others also has the power to brighten and lighten the mind and heart. So really, everything I'm saying tonight, I'm just trying to offer as another aspect of widening and broadening our path, our practice of awakening. So just a couple of stories to give you a sense. This winter uh, I was staying at a, a small meditation center and in the area that it's in, it's about a half an hour outside of Yangon, it's um, within like a 10-minute walk. There's at least 15 or 20 very small nunneries 
Very small means there could be like two nuns up to three or four adult women nuns and often with eight or ten or in some places even up to 40 really small little girl nuns. Which when you see these little cute nuns with, with they're all in pink, uh, Burmese nuns wear this like lovely pink color and their heads are shaved. And people who see these little girl nuns, that's it, it's all over. They're just so cute. You can't stand it. You can't. I didn't bring pictures just to say you can't stand it. And the first time you see it, the first one, you think, oh, she's so cute. And then you find out they're everywhere. So anyway, so these nunneries, all of the ones in this area, very poor, very poor. So I just want to tell us one particular one we visited. Um, we, we were going around looking, just meeting different women, different nunneries, and seeing ones that we could offer some little support to. So this one we went to, we were really drawn because it, the, it was two sisters, in, uh, one's 42, one was 37, and they had eight, eight or ten uh, small, orf, either, either orphan girls, or they only have one parent, or the parents were so poor they couldn't support them, and they were on the street. So these little girls were between six and six-year-old. They're about that high, up to 14. They're living in, you know, a little, a little I mean, I can't even describe. Well, they're all these little shacky places made out of bamboo. Oh, I mean, it's less big than just up here. Maybe half as wide as up here. And maybe going back there with a little, you know, kitchen outside, a little brazier outside, made out of kind of plaited bamboo and this is, you know, 10 or 12 of them are living in this. And we walk in and there's just such a, there happened to be such a feeling of metta and lightness in this place. We walk in and in this just little, you know, crummy floor, there's a tiny little bookcase with poly books and, and study, you know, Burmese study books. There's a big blackboard. And on it, in the Burmese script, but we asked what it is, it, they're, they're teaching the little girls poly which is the language the Theravada um, sutras are written in. They're teaching them Abhidhamma. They're teaching them Burmese in this little crummy place. They get up at four. They uh, pray, which means meditate and chant for a while. They all have breakfast together. And then the two sisters start teaching these little girls until they all get together, have their showers, have lunch. And then the oldest sister really wants to study. She goes away for the afternoon. She manages to scrape together enough little money to take a bus into Yangon so she can study more. Meanwhile, the other sister teaches these little girls all afternoon, and then the other sister comes home. And this is their life, except for two days a week when all the nuns have to, they don't go out every morning for alms round because they wouldn't get food the way the monks do. But so what a lot of the nuns do is twice a week, every week, at like 5 a.m., they all get on a bus and go to some designated part of the city of Yangon. And it seemed like all the nuns in this area, they all kind of had their own space so they don't you know, all go to the same area. And all day, from 5 a.m. until night, they walk around with their little bowls and they get raw rice and a little bit of chat, a little bit of money. So when they come home, if they have money, they can buy the other food. Sometimes they get too much rice, and then they go and sell it to the rice stall guy down the road, and they get money for their other food. So this is their life. And we were talking to these two sisters who, as I said, are filled with life. And they were so 
um, strong about really it's so important to help bring up these young girls because life without Paris, life without an education is so hard here. They could end up servants on the street. It's so important that they have a chance to better themselves. They were so filled with, you know, care for them. They say when someone gives us uh, a set of robes, we think wonderful because now we can make 15 little blouses out of these robes for these little girls. That's the way we think. So we assume this was because many women become nuns and have the idea to start schools. We figured that's what they wanted to do. That was you know, their plan. But no, not at all. They're acting from total generosity. These two sisters had only become nuns in their early 20s. One, because the first sister was so sick, she was almost dying for two years. She couldn't even move. She, couldn't, she said if her hand was down on the ground, she couldn't raise it to her chest. If her hand was on her chest, she couldn't lower it. Her parents were, had been a little bit well off, but they had lost uh, their money. They were, she heard them talking. They were going to have to sell their house to take care of her, to buy. And she thought, no, I can't have them do that. I'll become a nun told her parents, who immediately said, no way, you can't be a nun, you know, even though they were going to have to sell their house to take care of her. So she struggled and fought, and they said, okay, if your other sister comes with you. So we asked the other sister, how did you feel about that? <laughs> she said, oh, I always wanted to be a nun, but they wouldn't let me. So it was a big struggle with the family, but they were allowed to become nuns. This is one of these wild Burmese stories. <laughs> Two days after they ordained, that one who was so sick, she could get up and walk, you know, and she uh, could start talking. She hadn't been able to talk. And she said now she's a little weak again, but it's been 15 years. So that, that kind, of, kind of magical stuff happens a lot there. Anyway, they came to Yangon and studied, and they were studying themselves. And just two years ago, they didn't have these little girls, and they were really deciding now what they wanted to do was go to a meditation center they'd been studying, They wanted to go and really dedicate themselves to meditation, to practice, to become liberated. But just at that time, the Sayadaw in their home village, which was way down in the delta, died. And it's one of these that didn't quite get what happened, but somehow he died, and he'd been taking care of all these little girls, so he sends them up to the two sisters just before he dies. Okay, now you have to take care of these girls. There was never anything they wanted to do or thought about. And what did they do? They just immediately... 180 degree about face. Oh, okay. They got, with the help of their family, they got this little land. By themselves, with the help of their brother, they built this house. And then now they're completely dedicating, like I described their life, to raise these girls and help them have a better life. Complete, with not a trace of, you know, okay, I have to do this, but of love and affection. And you could see it in the way that they related to the little girls and the way they related to each other. And there's just a real buoyancy and metta in that place. That's not an uncommon story. That's a kind of normal story. Especially with the nuns, that's why I like visiting them. This incredible generosity of spirit and heart, together with this real metta, this real kindness, without the kind of resistance, okay, I'm stuck with these little girls. They just change the mind. And then also, but it's not blind, she said, you know, in 10 years, once they really learn, if they want to disrobe and, and, and go live a life, great. They'll have good values. They'll know how to live a good life. That's wonderful. we do not not trying to make them nuns for life. But if some of them stay nuns and they can teach, that's even better because then we can finally go off and meditate. So they didn't forget that. 
you know? But there's just this quality of not just me, but us. And the us suddenly changed, you know, from the two to the ten, and their activities changed. So that's just one, one example. And as I said, just being uh, there, and we we're getting this through translators, you just come away feeling so happy. It's very contagious in that way. And it's not just, um, as I say, it's a kind of a mutuality. And it's not just in with the nuns or with the monks. It's really there in the culture. The sense of the joy of receiving. It's like no shame to be on the receiving end of generosity. If you give something to nuns or to lay people who are hungry, the receiving is done with a real dignity with a real face-to-face presence, just as the giving is done. It's kind of like always a little ceremony, and pictures are taken, and it's a a joyful kind of time. It's not the sense of, oh, this poor homeless person needs something, and, you you know, it doesn't have any of that. So at the same time, um, in this little meditation center where we were staying, the village around... They were affected by the cyclone of a year ago, and still quite the people, there was quite some hunger. And so this, the Sayada, the head of the monastery, we had brought in a, a bunch of money that a lot of people all over the world had donated. And so one of the things he did was organize what's called a rice don, offering rice to each of the households in the village right around, which was like 1,200 households. And they know exactly, it's all extremely orderly. You know, each household gets a little chit, and on the day of it, they pile up the rice, and each person comes with their chit, and then you hand them the bag of rice, and the women all put it on their head, these giant bags, you know, and go walking off. And um, again, it's like they're dressed up, and it's very, it's just lovely doing it, but it's fast. It's not like a leisurely thing. It's like, boom, you're throwing this heavy rice out. They take it and go, it really moves. Anyway, my point is, so these were... Um, Village, you know, all the villagers in that village. And this is where the monks in that meditation center go for their alms round every morning. Of course, just this immediate village. So the next morning, it was mostly Burmese monks, but there was one uh, uh, Mexican monk, so he was kind of, you know, talking to us. And he told us when they went out for the alms round, he'd been there several months so you kind of always go on the same route on the alms round. You get to know the route, and more or less the same families, more or less the same people come out and offer the rice or the food. You can just and it's always done with this great, uh, again, dignity. You know, people stand and wait for the monks. They step out of their shoes. They kind of bow and give. And it's just, it's, I don't know. There's something about it in the early morning. It's really beautiful. But what this guy told us is that this next morning, after the rice dana when they went out. There were families and people out there giving rice who'd never been out there before. And it's because now they had rice to give. And it's like so touching to me. The first thing they did on receiving rice was turn around and offer it back again to the monks. Not all of it, but some of it. And so there's just this this sense of the movement of the joy and the sense of the... I mean, it was so touching to hear. This monk who received it was really deeply you know, touched, uplifted, his heart, you know, and then you want to be more generous, and it's like, it's like a flow. But also a sense of the happiness of the people who then can offer something. So this is a, it's a, it's a real living thing that the, the longer I spend just even just watching that, not being part of it, 
it, it starts to affect our heart and minds because I know Joseph said uh, last night that violence can be contagious, but all of moods are contagious. But the wholesome, the beautiful states are really contagious, super contagious, like an infection because it's touching that place of truth, that place of beauty in us. That's why it's so touching, you know. So, as I said, it's just in the culture. Later, we, we took food down on some boats down into the delta to even poorer villages, you know, and so it was a whole organizational thing. The Sayadaw organized all of this, which is really quite a lot. He's a wonderful guy, very kind and caring. And anyway, so we were the same thing, just it was offering some food. But the, it was all organized through the monasteries in these villages, so the villagers knew that the Sayadaw was coming with food. So when they got there, it was all, or they, the villagers had all brought to offer back to the Sayadaw, to take back to his monastery, beautiful plants that they had grown or fruit that they had. It was like this really joyful thing where they all took in a big procession down to the boats, whatever they had that they could offer back, so that there's this sense of giving and receiving and joy all around. It's a, it's a very alive thing. And it's so central to the culture that, uh, what was it, a year and a half, two years ago, I don't know if you remember when there were big demonstrations again in Burma, and again it was shut down, of course. But one, some of the things that, one of the things that the monks did was to refuse to accept offerings from the military, from the big generals, so that if the generals would come to the monastery and want to offer, and they would do it for show, they would come with cameras so that there could be pictures in the newspaper of the generals offering to monks, which was a way of trying to keep the spiritual legitimacy. you know. And if they'd come to offer, or even on alms round, what the monks would do is just turn their bowl upside down. That's all. That's like a huge insult. Huge and if it wasn't a really well-known or protected monk, they were arrested and thrown in jail for that, simply for refusing to accept generosity. That's really the power that's seen of that, you know, breaking that. And what they're refusing it because recognizing what's really the truth about the way the Buddha taught generosity is that the heart of it is in the intention, in the purity of intention, in the faith, in the kindness, in the connectedness. And so when someone's coming and offering not from that place, you know, they don't really want to receive because it isn't really what generosity means in that, in that circumstance. So, as I said, it's so intrinsic that even the little kids, I was, um, I was walking one day just between these two, two meditation centers. It's like a 10-minute walk on the road. Just, just before dark, and then all the kids are out of school, and they're just all, it's, it's a very poor little village there, you know. So all the kids are just kind of running around wild, and I was just minding my own business, walking back. And suddenly a little boy, and he was still in his cute little school uniform, his little green shorts and his shirt, he looked kind of neat compared to the others. And he came up to me very solemnly, and mostly they would ignore me, just came up to me very solemnly with this tiny little white jasmine flower, and with great dignity and, and attention, he came up to me and bowed and handed me this jasmine flower. I, was, I mean, it just made me cry, you know. It was just so lovely. 
And I just bowed and thanked him in Burmese, one of the like three words I know. And that was it. I mean, that was all. You don't need to make a big deal about it. But just that sense of, of how that's in the culture and the connection it brings and the happiness, the upliftedness it brings, it brightens my mind and heart now just to think about that little action. So the generosity has really far-reaching effects, whether we're giving, whether we're receiving. It doesn't stop with that little action. I was, I was trying to think of an example of this, and I remembered the book, um, the many, if you've read it, it's been in the bestseller list in the States for years, called Three Cups of Tea, by, by an American man, Greg Mortensen, who, I won't the hope, but he was climbing, he was a mountain climber, climbing K2 on the, the Nepalese, no, Pakistan, in the Pakistani part. And coming down, he somehow got separated from his friends and lost. And, uh, I mean, he wasn't like, you know, out there dying, but he was lost and in trouble. And he kind of stumbled into a Pakistani village. It's actually, I think, up in that part now, the Northwest, that's having so much suffering and so much pain from the fighting now. Anyway, and so a family, kind of head village, took him in. He just was kind to him, cared for him, gave him tea. The three cups of tea is something about if you have three cups of tea with someone, then you're friends for life, like a statement they have. He was so moved by that. I mean, he's an unusual guy, okay, it sounds like from his book, that he, he, he swore that he would come back and help them build a school. And he went home. His whole life has become about raising the money, and he went back to build this. It took him forever to raise the money. He worked as a nurse in an emergency room. At one point, this is why he's unusual, he lived in his car so he could save the money it would cost to have an apartment to go back and help build a school. I think he spent a year, he got the money, he went back and got there his way out. And he said, well, actually, before the school, what we really need is a bridge to go across this river here because otherwise we can't even get the materials. He got, oh. Okay, then we'll build a bridge, you know. And he didn't know what he was doing. Anyway, it's just mushroom, mushroom, to now he has this huge foundation and he's building schools all over and he goes back every year. From just a simple act of hospitality and kindness, you know, and it just keeps cycling. So we don't know. A friend um, was talking to me a couple of years ago. She had been in, I guess it was Burma again for a retreat for a couple of months. And she was talking to me about her experience coming back. She said how she didn't really notice at first. I mean, she noticed that people are really kind. The people who run the, the guest house where she was staying just go out of their way to do little things for you. She's an acupuncturist. She met some acupuncturists, and they were so kind in taking her all over Mandalay and took her to see really um, big sayadaws to work on them and dinner. It just, it just goes on and on. It's just like that. And she said at first, you know, she was appreciating it, but she didn't really notice what an uplifting effect it was having on her heart, on her mind. But after a month or two, and I, this is the same for me the first time I went, I started to notice that I was not always happy, but happier. But when difficult things happened, I would feel like I had some, some support some sustenance, some pliability of heart and mind, some resiliency of heart and mind. I could actually notice the kind of the metta around me, the generous field around me, and you can call on that to kind of give you um, just the wherewithal to be with difficult. So it's not like you're just happy, happy all the time. I don't mean that. 
but it's a, a real strengthening and uplifting. So she said she really noticed it. And when she came home, and I keep having this too, we come back to the States and people are really generous. I don't, we're really, people are really generous in the States. And, and I assume here too, you know, I'm not saying we're not. But doesn't have, she said it's not the same for her, and I've noticed this too, that kind of natural, spontaneous extending of ourselves to others isn't quite so free-flowing back in the States. It's, it's almost like a little, you know, you don't want to intrude on somebody's space. You don't want to seem like you're, you know, you're offering something that they could be offended or whatever stupid reasons we have. But it's just not so naturally free-flowing. A little more closed in and we're generous, but you know, we get all these letters in the mail and we write a check or we do this or we once a week go to the soup kitchen, which is all great. I'm not saying it's not. But there's just some immediacy of the face-to-face, some natural, free-flowing spontaneity that isn't quite as completely in the culture, you know. And she just started to notice how that was. Just the difference, just the difference. So in terms of how the Buddha talked about it, I just want to give some examples, some stories from about a man who lived during the Buddha's time, who was seen as the most generous supporter of the Buddha, Anatta Pindaka. And he shows up, Anatta Pindaka. He shows up, stories about him show up a lot all through the suttas. And I'm just taking particular ones that highlight actually the teachings, the quality of the practice of generosity as a freeing practice, as a supportive practice for our path of liberation. And really what it highlights is the importance of the inner motivation, not so much what's, not at all what's given. So, Anattapindika, yeah, he, he was seen as the most generous, and he did happen to be rich. So in that way, you could say he was the most generous because he had the most to give. But really, he was the most generous in terms of the motivation, the generosity of his heart, which arose not out of a should, a should, but out of faith and joy and wisdom, you know, in the teachings. So if you've, if you've read the suttas at all, you probably know how many start out with, thus have I heard, that's Ananda talking when it starts like that. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in the Jeta Grove, Anatapindaka's monastery. It really shows up a lot in the suttas. The Jeta Grove was this beautiful Grove Monastery that Anattapindaka bought and donated to the Buddha and, he, and his whole Sangha. And they spent 19 out of 45 range retreats there. A range retreat is like three months a year in the rainy season that the, the, the monks and nuns were wandering. You know, They moved from place to place. But three months of a year in the rainy season, they would stay in one place. Mostly, they'd do their meditation, live a more secluded life, but also not to harm the crops that were growing. So it's, again, the mutuality, you know, not wandering around through the fields and harming the crops. So, so interesting, just a little bit about how his faith arose before he started being generous. Because for me, it just speaks to that the beginning of the generosity isn't a should or a wanting or what would be nice, but it's the deep inner movement of connectedness, of faith, and of real wisdom in in the Buddhist path, and not in the Buddhist path, but the path of awakening. 
So before he'd ever met the Buddha, he came to, he was a good man, but he came to his brother-in-law's house to visit, and usually they were so happy to see him. But this time, something was going on, and they were just, oh, hi, hi, and everyone was busy. And he said, what's happening? And his brother-in-law said, well, we're inviting the enlightened one, the blessed one, for a meal. And he heard that enlightened one, and it just like shot a bolt of lightning through him. He said, who, who, the Buddha, I've got to go see him. And his brother-in-law said, well, tonight's not appropriate. You can go in the morning. And he was so excited. He couldn't sleep. He kept waking up. You know that, now is it morning? Now is it time to go? And finally he couldn't wait, and he just went out in the dark and was walking way far to find the Buddha. But he got so scared. He got so nervous. He was just so jacked up, you know. And he got so scared, he was like, I better go back, I better go back. And as often happens, you know, an invisible spirit urged him on, so we could see that as an invisible spirit or our own, you know, inner intuition. So better for you to go forward, going forward. So he kept going, and in just in the dawn, he sees this serene person doing walking meditation in the distance. So of course we know who that is. And he sees this person, but he's, he's afraid, you know, he's too shy. But the Buddha sees him and calls him by name, Sudatta, which no one called him that, only his like family knew that name. Please come. And he, so he knew he was in the presence of the Buddha, but he was so like nervous. You know, when you meet someone you really want to meet, and you're so nervous you just can't think of what you want to say. So he threw himself at the Buddha's feet and said, did you sleep well last night? You know, <laughs> just felt like an idiot after that. <laughs> the Buddha doesn't care. <laughs> So, of course, the Buddha gave him a whole, a whole teaching. This also, often, the Blessed One gave Anattapindaka a step-by-step teaching. And this shows up in many other, in many other suttas, and I'm bringing it in because it relates to generosity. When he meets someone who hasn't really seen the Dhamma, isn't really quite in tune with the teaching at all, He gives step-by-step to bring the heart, the mind, into readiness, into a state of openness to hear, to understand, you know, the depth of Dhamma. You you can't just blast everybody. And he starts by giving talks on generosity. So he starts by talking on the virtues of generosity and then on the the power of virtue, of non-harming behavior. And then from there, he goes to um, the, the... perils of vanity and getting lost in sense pleasure. He talks about the benefits of renunciation, and then, I love this line, when he saw that Anatta Pindaka was ready in heart and mind, pliable, unobstructed, uplifted, and serene. And that's really when we're transforming the consciousness, working with generosity, working with virtue, working with renunciation, it has the power to affect this transformation in our heart, in our mind. For even momentarily, our minds become uplifted, unobstructed, not clouded by hindrances, serene. That's really, you know, just important. And then he gives them a teaching on the Four Noble Truths because then the heart-mind is open to, to take it in. So it's just very practical. And at that point, the dust-free, stainless eye of truth opened for Anattapindaka. Whatever has the nature of arising, all that has the nature of passing away. He had understood the truth of the Dhamma, overcome doubts, 
and was without wavering. He was now self-dependent in the dispensation. He had realized the path and fruit of stream entry. So that's in the Theravada, like the first level of awakening. And I love that sense of self-dependent. It doesn't mean one is completely, totally, forever free of greed, hatred, and delusion. But there's that sense that you can rely on your faith, your understanding. Yeah, we get lost again and again and again. But you can rely on the trust and faith to find the way again, to, to call on the tools you need. So at that point, when his faith and his wisdom were really alive, that's when the generosity came forth. And so from that point, you know, he invited the Buddha and his to eat and the whole sangha to eat and then later he paid a you know, mint for this jeta grove because the prince didn't want to sell it and just you know many stories of his generosity but the point I wanted to make is that it begins with that upliftedness, that joy that you know that real love of the truth so it isn't personal to the Buddha he's supporting you know the possibility for this truth of Dhamma to keep on being shared so that's really very important. And there's actually another story right after it about Anattapinika that highlights again the importance of the motivation, that it's not about the object or the time or what's given, how much or how little. It's all in the motivation. That's what liberates our heart and mind. That's what uplifts the consciousness. So after a time, the king of this area, who was a follower of the Buddhas, a pretty devout, King Pasanati. He heard how generous Anattapindaka was. Anattapindaka would have 500 monks and nuns come every day and offer them food, and you know everyone felt so filled with light and serene in his house. So Pasanati said, yeah, I want to do that too. So he decided to offer every day, he'd offer the wonderful, delicious meal to 500 monks. But then he learned, after some time, he learned from his servants that after the monks were offered the food, they would take it with them and go to their supporters in the city. And the monks would give the food to their supporters, and then the supporters would offer it back to the monks. So King Pasanati said, what's, what's up with that? You know, I'm giving you really good food and stuff. What's up with that? So he's asking the Buddha this. The Buddha explained to the king that in the palace... The courtiers that he had, he had his servants distributing the food, and they did it without any, any, any inner feeling at all. It was just their job, you know, give out the food. You know, they could have been following orders as if they were cleaning out a barn or taking a thief to court. That was the Buddha's examples, you know. They lacked faith and had no love in the doing of it. And so when anything is given in that spirit, this is from the Buddha, no one would feel comfortable accepting it even when the meal was made of the most delicious food. So they would take it to their supporters, and their supporters would (coughs) offer it back with a a purity of inner intention. And that's the act of generosity. You know, even though the supporters didn't give them the food, but it was that, that purity that makes the receiving and the giving really alive. So just emphasizing, there's another, another statement from the Buddha. Even if a person throws the rinsings, you know, when you rinse a bowl or a cup after eating, even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or a pond thinking while they do it, may whatever animals live here feed on this, 
that would be a great source of generosity and merit. I mean, we can all do that, right? (laughs) Pour out our water and say, may these animals, may these plants live. The mind is being purified in that moment. The heart is being uplifted Ah, throughout the water. May all beings have fresh water. That's all it takes. Over and over and over, you can see how it really changes the way we relate to life and each other, that we really are connected in that place. We're not just about me, that it really does bring in an openness, a beauty. It's very, very powerful. So, I just want to offer this from a talk I heard from Unyana Panika, who came many years ago to IMS with Upandita. He was a Nepalese monk, and he gave this talk on generosity that I loved, he gave six points, just six points for the actual practice of giving. So I just want to offer these, not to make a big thing, but I found them lovely. So the first, when you're actually giving something, and it could be a book, it could be just your time to listen to a friend, you know, it could be anything. It could be pouring the water on the plants, whatever it is. The first thing is to just with mindfulness, this is all acts of mindful presence with ourselves, give attention to the volition. So like you kind of consciously get in touch with a pure volition. So for example, again, is pouring the water. We can just do it like that or we can take a second. Oh yeah, may I really offer this? That's all. So give attention to the volition. With the generous act of the bodhisattvas, with this act, may all beings be free from suffering. I mean, that's a practice, you know. With, as we wash our hands, may all beings have clean hands. With this act, may all beings be free from suffering. Just try dropping it in over and over and over. See the effect it has on how we feel, how we relate to the world. Second, whatever one is giving, again, this is a, a motivation, take a moment to see if there's any clinging to it and see if you can just abandon that clinging. So it's kind of, should I give this or not? Just take a moment and feel the clinging, not with aversion. You know, you have clinging, and sometimes we really can abandon it so it's given wholeheartedly. Sometimes not. There's no shoulds. But just taking that little moment to see, abandon the clinging. This third one's interesting, not always possible, but I think it's part of what makes it so alive in Burma and Thailand, that when it's possible, when it's appropriate, to have the giving and the receiving be direct, face-to-face, you know. Um, That's really powerful because it increases so much the awareness of the interconnectedness, of the joy, of the the love, the metta that's moving back and forth. Upandita made me do that one time. We were on this retreat, and I'd heard him say he wanted a book about, uh, kind of a simple book in English, he was learning English, about Jesus, about Christianity. He wanted to learn. So I was sitting But it was at IMS, so I had a lot of friends, so I had a friend buy the book and give it to him. And also, I have to say, I was a little shy. I sometimes see myself being shy about giving a gift. It's not good enough or whatever. And so I was hiding a little bit. I was on retreat. I mean, I couldn't do it, but I was also hiding a little bit. And he he could really tell what's going on a lot. When I came out of the retreat, and I was just kind of paying my respects to him, he goes... This book, you take this book, you hand it to me. He said, it's a wonderful face-to-face. 
So he made me really handed. And then it was like, it was a real teaching because he took it, we're both holding it, and he's really present. And it's really what they do in Burma and Thailand when you offer a dana or receive. Really there. Not like, oh, you're someone, but accepting it 100% and saying, you know, may this gift be a cause for your awakening, for your enlightenment. Can you imagine giving? And this happens a lot. You give somebody a little thing and they say, may this be a cause for your... May you realize Nibbana in the shortest possible time. That's what they say in Burma. Can you imagine being somewhere, you give somebody a Coke, and they say, may you realize Nibbana in the shortest possible time? It's another culture, but it's nice, you know. You want to give them a Coke again. Again, that, that nunnery I mentioned to you, that was so kind of the one I was telling the story about. It was another, another example of the giving face-to-face uh, our, our friend Jack Cornfield was leading uh, this this winter. He brought about 15 people to Burma, kind of on a tour, but they'd all donated a lot of money to a foundation uh, of, that Jack's on the board of, a project foundation for the people of Burma. So it was really a way to raise, he actually raised like $300,000 these people had donated for, for, to build houses and for people who'd been in the cyclone and stuff. So he was taking them around and he came to, to where we were in the monastery. So it was their first day. And I mean, so he knew I was there, and he'd call me up, and he'd go, Carol, so can we go see some nuns? So just something, go see some nuns. He wanted to go see this other teacher who wouldn't let him come. So we went to see these nuns, and so me and Aryanani and Viranani, my two Western nun friends, we thought this is the best place to take them. Of all of them, it's really little, it's really poor, and there's this great meta feeling. So we took them there, and they all, we told them, warned them, you know. So this group of like 15 people crowded in. I mean, these first of all, these big old Westerners crowded in to this little room I told you about and actually started cracking the bamboo floor. I mean, it was, it was a scene. So we're all crouched there, and the little nuns are kind of standing up because there's no room to sit. And they're just talking and telling their story and this and that, that's all. And then at the end... Talk, kind of talking to the head of the group, and so they wanted to donate some money. They go out, and Jack had said to me, oh, we'll give you some money to give to them. I said, no, no, you give the money to them. That's the whole thing. I said, okay, okay. So they went out, got the money, came in, and offered it, which you do. You just hand, you know, in an envelope. And then they do what they do, and I, we knew this would blow them away. They all, the nuns, and including the little ones, they're all standing there, and they chant a metta chant for like five or ten minutes. These little six-year-olds, they know it, and they're putting their heart into it. And by the end of it, these guys were like, they were gone. They were, you know, they were crying, let's give more money, let's give, no, 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 that was already a lot. You'll see many, many more people, you don't need to give more money. And they came out, and it was, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I saw Jack two months later, and that was the first thing he said, you knew it was going to be like that, didn't you? You know, so it was just, it was wonderful. They were like floating. It's, it's hard to explain. It's just some little bit of a chanting. But it's that face-to-face and the reciprocity of you leave having given, feeling like, who gave? Who received? You know, you receive so much more than you gave in terms of the, the beautiful aspects of heart. So that's the third, give face-to-face. The fourth, when you're giving, this is obvious, give with your attention, with your mind focused on the giving. Like really do it wholeheartedly. And again, this is something I've often seen myself, oh yeah, yeah, you can have this, you know. It's really, not to make it, but really, oh yes, I would like to offer this to you. 
so that it lets in the, the moving out of the sense of self. You know, it lets in the, there's no ill will, there's not delusion, there's not an offhandedness, there's that real heart-to-heart generosity. Just, oh yes, just, just a mindfulness as you do it. After giving, this is the fifth one, continue to be mindful of your motivation, your volition. Because you know how sometimes you give, oh, you know, I wish I didn't do that. Or you say, oh, sure, I'll be glad to spend some time with you. And then you go home, oh, I don't want to, oh, I've got so many other things to do. So continue to be mindful, because it might change. And if it changes, you can, again, uh, get back to that place of generosity. And, this, and the um, six, and this is, again, important, aspect of clear comprehension with all of our mindfulness to be aware of the broader context so that when we give we give in a way that doesn't harm ourselves or harm others give in a way that's appropriate so this is an aspect of wisdom and there's another quotation if I can oh yeah from the Buddha about this how a person of integrity gives a gift Five ways a person of integrity gives. Which five? A person of integrity gives a gift with a sense of conviction. A person of integrity gives a gift attentively. A person of integrity gives a gift in season. It kind of means at the appropriate time. A person of integrity gives a gift with an empathetic heart. A person of integrity gives a gift without adversely affecting himself or others. So there's that aspect of wisdom, very similar to compassionate action, that we can't always know all the effects, but that there's times we think we want to help, but it could cause more trouble. The same with giving. And there's a story, again, from Anattapindaka that I really relate to as could happen today. Like, you know, do you give a junkie money? You know, if you know they're going to go buy more drugs. I'm not saying what, we don't know what the answer is, but there's some real ethical questions, what to give. So Anattapindaka, remember he's incredibly rich, and he, his kindness, it says, spread out to his whole family, his whole house and his servants and his family were all kind of serene and generous, and it spread to his friends, just not by teaching, just by being who he was. The generosity and the happiness was contagious. So that said... He had a nephew who inherited a huge fortune but lived a wild life, drinking and gambling and squandering his wealth on entertainers, women, and friends, you know, needy friends. So when he spent through his whole inheritance, he asked him not to pindica his uncle for money. So his uncle said, okay, he gave him a thousand gold pieces but said, use this to start a business, you know, kind of use it to get yourself going again. But he didn't, he just squandered it. Then he came back to his uncle again and asked for money again. And this time, Anattapindaka gave him five times as much, 5,000. But he said, but this is a severance, you know, this is it. Make something of yourself, no more. He squandered that, came back again. And this time, Anattapindaka said he would give him clothing, but nothing else. And he even squandered that. And the next time he came back, Anattapindaka says, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you anything. And it ended up that he became, he didn't want to be a beggar, and he ended up, uh, die. he died wretchedly. 
No, his body was found outside the city wall and thrown into the refuse pile. I mean, that's pretty wretched, right? And of course, Anattapinika felt bad and went to the Buddha and you know, said, what could I have done? And so I just, I just, you know, we have these kind of situations sometimes in our families, with our friends, with people we know. And you try, you try, you try. And so even with the Buddha, even with Anattapinika, there was a point where the giving was not, was adversely affecting them. It wasn't real generosity. And the Buddha said, so we don't ever know. He could see everybody's lifetimes in history. We don't know that. But he said that you really couldn't have done anything. It would have just gone on and on like that. That his nephew belonged to the fortunately small number of insatiable people who are like bottomless vats. I just think that's interesting. <laughs> Not that we can't all change, but that some of us, you know, we can just get so inured. So that's the sixth kind of giving, giving aware of the broader context in a way that doesn't adversely affect oneself or another. So the last thing I want to say in terms of the teaching of generosity as part of our path of awakening is that just as I explained how the Buddha used it as a graduated teaching, when you know when you see your heart and mind is kind of closed or dull or dark, you're caught in clinging or craving, and you listen to the Four Noble Truths or you think about some teachings that have been so wonderful, and it's just like, you know, you can't get there. Call on generosity. Call on virtue, non-harming behavior, which I didn't talk about. It's the same kind of qualities. Sometimes in the actions, I said even the small actions of throwing in water, offering something to a friend, clarifying your motivation, really paying attention. But there's, and so actions. But this is something I think we really don't think of or use enough in the West maybe, is that not only the actions, but the contemplation of our past actions is a very powerful source of brightening and freeing the heart and mind. And the Buddha talked about this. He said... um, He's talking about six wise reflections. And in another place he says, he talks about when you're meditating and your mind just gets really caught, pulled inside, you're spinning in something, then consciously call up a wise reflection, a beautiful reflection. You know, it's like change the channel, just like we're saying. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, those three reflections, which are powerful for people in countries that that arouses a lot of faith. That may or may not be true for for us. But the... The fourth one is to recollect your own virtues, your wholesome, non-harming, kind behavior. The fifth one, so that's the one I'm going to read, is a case where you recollect your own generosity. You consciously remember times that you have been generous and really reflect, let it in, on how, what a wonderful thing it is for your mm, clarity of mind, awakening of heart, that you have done these generous acts. We don't tend to do that, right? We sit and think, oh yeah, that's really an egotistical thing, run over all your generous acts. But this is what he said. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed at that moment. It's not overcome with aversion. It's not overcome with delusion. This is exact pointing to the moment-to-moment transformation of mind or heart. 
simply by recollecting your generosity. And when the, when the mind is not overcome with passion, aversion, or delusion, her heart, her mind heads straight based on generosity. And when the heart is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the goal, a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. And in one who is joyful, rapture arises. And one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. So, you should develop this recollection. He's talking to a lay person, not a monk or a nun. You should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. When we recollect generosity, our heart goes straight. We realize the goal, a sense of the Dhamma, and we experience the joy connected with the Dhamma. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Shanti Deva said, When I have done something for the sake of another, no amazement or conceit arises. It is like having fed myself. I look for nothing in return. 